You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Morning to the 1120 gathering. Hope all are well today. Why don't you turn to the neighbor who's next to you, stick out your hand, give him some knuckles, and just say, hey, nice and short and sweet. Hey, Jordan. That was probably enough interaction for all of you introverts out there, so we'll stop there. Why don't you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. It's where we've been for the last few weeks. If you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, that's just where we are, Matthew. So if you don't mind turning there, please. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount to see what Jesus would say to us today as his followers, as his disciples. It's a very relevant word uh, for our world, for our culture, for our lives today. Jesus has gathered his disciples in. Actually, you can tell in chapter five, verse one, that his disciples came to him. They scooted up close. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And I've said this the last two weeks, but I think it needs to be said again. This is not a sermon to the general public. This is Jesus talking to his followers. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Now, last week we looked at Matthew 5, verse 20. Let's look at that one more time this morning because it's a really important verse. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus is speaking and he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That verse is key to the entire Sermon on the Mount. I would say to you that verse is key to all of Christianity. It'd be like Jesus coming to us today and saying, if you want to get into heaven, you're gonna have to be a better person than Billy Graham. You're gonna have to be a better person than Mother Teresa. You're gonna have to be a better person than your sweet grandmother. Assuming you have a sweet grandmother, you're gonna have to be a better person than that sweet grandmother of yours. If you want to enter the kingdom of of heaven, why, why would Jesus say something like that? Well, what is Jesus doing? What he is doing is he is setting up the impossible. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were professional good people. They were great at religion. They were practicing their righteousness in front of others. They they lived up and followed the very letter of the law. They could outdo any of us in this room in, in doing good things. They probably had more scripture memorized than this entire room combined. These people were making up rules about the rules so they wouldn't break the rules. They were trying their best to be very righteous. And Jesus says, hey, Highland, if you want to go to heaven, you're going to have to be more righteous than these people. And so Jesus is setting the stage for his followers that your righteousness alone will not get you into the kingdom of God. Your righteousness alone will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter into God's kingdom based on your righteousness, our righteousness, our good deeds, our good behavior, our best behavior, our performance, our good deeds. We cannot enter into heaven based on our righteousness. The only way that you and I can enter into the kingdom of God, can enter into the kingdom of heaven, is based upon receiving the righteousness that belongs to Jesus. Because Christ and Christ alone lived a perfect life. Only Christ is righteous. So Jesus is beginning to set up right here. The only way we can enter God's kingdom is by taking on and receiving the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus is going to prove that. He's going to show that in in these two things we're going to see this morning. So let's begin in some new territory. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, so he's talking about the Old Testament, 
you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, your Bible might use the word there, raka, R-A-C-A. It's an Aramaic term that literally means empty-headed, like to have nothing upstairs. It's, it's the word we would use for, for fool. So if you say to anybody that you have nothing in your mind, you are a foolish person, you are a fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying some of you think that your righteousness is based on the fact that you haven't killed anybody. Some of you think that you are, have right standing with God because you've never murdered anyone. But I say to you, verse 22, have you ever been angry with somebody? I say to you, verse 22, have you ever insulted anybody? I say to you, verse 22, have you ever called anybody a fool or a name? Then Jesus is saying here, you're guilty. As God would have it, I was on a jury trial this week. It was a murder trial here in Waco. And I saw firsthand the devastation of murder through testimonies, through the crime scene photos. I saw the devastation, of course, for the victim, but also the family and the friends of the victim. I even saw the devastation for the family and the friends of the murderer. And Jesus right here does something that's probably gonna bother you. It should bother you. He said this to bother you. He's gonna tie murder and anger together. You can tell because he uses the same phrase. You see this in verse 21? If you kill someone, you're liable to judgment. You see the same phrase in verse 22? If you're angry with someone, you're liable to judgment. Same two phrases used for two different things. The same phrase used for two different things. Murder and anger, and Jesus does not give us an out here. The consequences spiritually for murder and for anger are the same. What's the word? Judgment. So Jesus is saying right here, it doesn't matter if you killed someone or you're angry at someone. If you killed someone or you insulted someone, you murdered someone or called someone a fool, you are still guilty and you're in the need of forgiveness from a savior and you need to take on his righteousness from the perfect son of God. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. Have you noticed this about Jesus? He never leaves good enough alone. Now he gets practical about anger. And what we as his followers, his disciples are to do with anger in our own lives. Three true things. You note takers today, three true things about anger. And we know it's true because Jesus tells us these three things. Three true things about anger. Number one, the cause of the hurt may be on them, but the anger is on you. It may have been someone else that caused the anger, it may have been someone else that stirred up the anger, but Jesus doesn't spend any time talking about that person. He talks about your heart, my heart, because the anger is on us. Jesus does not spend any time in this Sermon on the Mount saying that you are justified in your anger. 
He doesn't pat the heads of his followers and say, that's right, you'd just be, you'd just be angry. It is justified. He actually puts the weight on the person who is angry, not the onus on the person who caused the anger. We see this in verse 22, the very beginning of verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry... Now, it is true, later on in the New Testament, Paul is gonna come back in Ephesians chapter four and will say, be angry, but don't sin in that anger and don't let the sun set on your anger. So you may have heard this before as, as righteous anger or righteous indignation. The Bible actually does give us a loophole to be angry, but did you see and hear the very narrow parameters? If you're gonna be angry, you can't sin in that anger. And if you're gonna be angry, you have to make sure you're no longer angry when the sun goes down. So there's a time frame to it and the parameter, if you will, the boundaries of not, not sinning inside of that, of that anger. But let's be fully honest here today. Are you okay on taking your church mask off for just a few moments? Let's just take it off maybe for the remainder of our time here together. Most of us in this room, we're not dealing with anger that doesn't sin. We're dealing with anger that does sin. Most of us in this room, if you've been angry, you've been angrier for more than 12 hours. If you're angry, you've been holding on to that anger for a while. Now, let me just say, if you've been angry in the last two or three hours and you haven't sinned in that, you're perfectly fine, as long as you're not angry at eight o'clock tonight. The Bible gives you that permission. If you're angry right now, be angry. Don't sin in it, you can't sin. And you have to lay down that anger before the sun goes down this evening. Sometimes people want to point to Jesus and say, yeah, but Jesus got angry. If Jesus got angry, I can be angry. Jesus made a whip and he like chased people out of the, of the temple and he was flipping over tables. And so if Jesus can, can be angry, then I have a right to be angry as well. I'm, I'm not so sure that scripture tells us that story so that this afternoon we can make whips and chase people out of the church that we don't like. I don't think that's the purpose of, of, of the story. In fact, I would say that most of us, we can't do that because we don't have the control that Jesus has or the context or the clarity or the character. And so we really shouldn't look at Jesus and say, yeah, if you can be angry, we, we can be angry. If you can flip over tables, we can flip over tables. By the way, here's the free sermon. That the point of that story is not make a whip and chase people away. The point of that story is my house will be called a house of prayer. That's why Jesus told that story. That's why that story is told to us. So we really can't look to Jesus and say, yeah, if you get angry and, and whip people, we can be angry and, and whip people as, as well. But we do see that there's godly anger in the Bible or again, righteous indignation. Then there's godless anger as well. How can you tell the difference? It's actually pretty easy. Number one, godly anger leads to godly actions. So if you're right in your anger, you're righteous in your anger, your anger reflects the character of God, it's gonna always lead you to do godly things. Like what, preacher? Like pray. Like reconcile with others. Like searching the scriptures and asking the spirit of the Lord to search your heart in the middle of that anger. How about things like voting, serving others, helping others, conversations of, of unity, persuasion that's built on relationships, not persuasion that's built on manipulation. So godly anger, if you have godly anger, you'll always know because it will lead you to do godly things. But you already see on the screen, godless anger, it leads to godless words and godless thoughts and godless reactions. Things like yelling, cursing, insulting, defaming, pushing, 
I mean, if your anger is making you bitter, then that's a godless anger. If that anger is making you hostile and violent and isolated and controlling of other people, that is not godly anger, that's godless anger. And dads, since I am one, let me talk to you with great love for just a few moments. Your words in your household matter. Dads, your words matter to your kids. If you're always giving words of encouragement and life and love and hope, your kids will live up to those words. But if your words are always words of frustration and disappointment and shame, your kids will live down to those words. Dads, just hear me clearly. Your words matter. And if your kids, all they see in you is that you're frustrated with them, you're angry with them, you're put out with them, your kids are gonna see the God of heaven in the same way as a God that's always ashamed or a God that doesn't have time or a God that's always putting his kids down. Our words matter. Godly anger leads to godly action, but godless anger will always lead to to godless thoughts and godless words and godless reactions. Number two, here's what Jesus says. Forgiveness and reconciliation are more urgent than worship. This might be surprising to some of you this morning that forgiveness and reconciliation are more urgent than worship. Jesus is so serious about forgiveness and he so highly values reconciliation. Jump back to verse 23. I hope your Bible is is still open there. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come back and then you can offer your gift. So Jesus is saying right here, if you're coming before the Lord with an offering, that can be a a financial offering, it can be the offering of of, of singing to the Lord, it can be an offering of your life, of, of your heart, and you remember that someone is angry with you. Now see how Jesus switches this now? It's not that you are angry, but you know someone is angry at you. Here's the conduct Jesus asks of us. Leave the offering. Stop singing the song. Don't come and kneel down here. Put up the checkbook. If you know someone is angry at you and justified in their anger towards you, don't come and kneel here before the Lord. Don't write a check. Go to that brother and be reconciled. Go to that brother and seek forgiveness. And then Jesus says, then you can keep singing the song. Then you can keep writing the check. Then you can lay your life down before me. Then you can come and kneel before me. Then you can offer me your life and your heart and and your future. But if you know that there is a, a tension or a chasm, a schism, a broken relationship, a hurt relationship with a brother, and this is really important, within the family of God, Jesus actually says, I see forgiveness and reconciliation as a more urgent matter than your very worship. Have you noticed that when anger enters the room, everything else leaves? I mean, common sense certainly leaves, but there's two other things that I'm thinking of specifically that leave the room when anger enters in, and that's grace and unity. I mean, think about it in your marriage. Think about it in your friendships. Think about it in your family. Think about it with your roommates. When someone's really angry and they're expressing that godless anger, the first two things that leave is grace and unity. So Jesus is saying right here, if there's anger within the body of Christ, if there's anger within the family of God, 
You don't want to push away grace. You don't want to push away unity. And anger has a way of pushing out grace. Anger has a way of pushing out unity. You know, most of us showed up today at 11.20 because we wanted to worship God today. And that is a good thing. We came to worship the Lord today, and he is, oh, so worthy of our worship and of our lives. But here, this hillside radical Jesus, he shows up and says, oh, yes, my father loves your worship, but there's something that we find even more urgent, and that is that you go and forgive and reconcile with your brother. Notice that word was used four times, brother, in this passage, verse 22, verse 22, verse 23, verse 24. You probably know this by now. Anytime you see a word repeated in scripture, that's the spirit of the Lord trying to tell you something. Four times that word brother is used as a reminder. This is not just talking about you be reconciled with your friends. This is a picture of the context of the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, the importance of forgiving each other, forgiving one another, the importance of reconciling with other believers. Jesus finds this supremely urgent to the point where he says, lay out your worship, put it down, and go to your brother, go to your sister in Christ. Here's the third thing we see. Staying in anger only hurts one person, the angry one. And you probably know this by now. You kind of hear this statement a whole lot, and Jesus says it here in this story. is what he's talking about with this angry person in verses 25 and 26. Jesus is saying in those two verses, if you're kind of living your life and you're at work, you're at school, you're out about, about town and someone who's been angry with you for a long time approaches you. This is a person who, who is bitter. They, they approach you. Jesus is saying right here, don't lose a minute. Like you make the very first move to reconcile. After all, if you let the first move belong to him and he's been angry for a long time, for many seasons, that, that person has been hanging on to anger. You have no idea. You might end up in court. You might end up in jail. And if that happens, Jesus said, you'll be paying a lot all because you're dealing with the person who's been angry at you for a long time. Jesus is saying that right here. Anger only hurts one person. It's the person who is angry. You can write down this quote. I'm not even sure who said it, but it's simply this. Holding on to anger is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. The internet attributed that to about 25 different people, from Buddha to C.S. Lewis. So I have no idea who actually said it, or I'd give that to you. But holding on to anger is like taking poison, drinking poison yourself, and just sitting around waiting for that other person to die. There's a lot of truth to that. Anger does very little to the person you're angry at. But I'll tell you this, in in 30 years of of doing this now, ministry, I have seen people spiritually decay because they were so angry and they would never let go. I've seen it go into bitterness and like roots of bitterness that were growing. I've seen it grow into depression all because they were so angry at somebody. And what's fascinating about that scenario is the person with whom they're angry is just living their life happily. Good family, good job. And you're falling apart spiritually because you're holding on to to that anger. I wonder at times if we have a hard time giving grace to others because we have not fully realized the grace we've received ourselves. I think if we realize that the greatness of that grace, the weightiness of that grace, the costliness of that grace, it'd be much easier for you and I to not hold on to that anger. But I look around a room like this and I know statistically speaking, there are some in this house today that you've been wronged majorly. You've been abused betrayed, walked out on, divorced. 
and you're hearing Jesus, and now this preacher got up here saying things like, For, forgive, if you're, if you're angry, it's only hurting you. Holding on to anger is, is like taking poison and just hoping that, that person that you're angry at, eventually that, that, that he dies. And there's a good percentage of us in this house today that you're that angry at a specific person. In fact, you're so angry, you've rehearsed what you're gonna say when you see them the next time. And it's a great speech, isn't it? Like, it sounds perfect. I mean, you've memorized it at this point. If I ever see him, if I ever see her, if I ever see them, the next time I see that person alone, here's what I'm gonna say to them. That's how hurt you are. You've been rehearsing your anger for years now. And some of you in this room, you're angry at someone who's been dead for a while. And you're still angry. Here's here's what I I would say. Forgiveness doesn't remove the weight of justice. It just removes the weight of you being the judge. So if someone has betrayed you, abused you, hurt you, wronged you, that doesn't mean that there's no justice. In fact, I can guarantee you there'll be justice either in this life or the life to come. But the most freeing thing in the world you can do is not be the judge. The most freeing thing in the world you can do is not compete with the job title of Jesus. Just let him be the judge. Let him do the sorting. It's so freeing to realize I don't have to be the judge in this. There will be justice, again, either in this life or the life to come. I do not have to be the judge. If Jesus paid it all, not only do you not need to be the judge, you really don't have the right to be the judge. Matthew 5, verse 27. Jesus goes back again and says kind of what he said up in verse 21. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Wow. Jesus was saying earlier, haven't killed anybody? Have you been angry at someone? Now he says here, you haven't committed adultery? Have you ever had a lustful thought? Because if you have, you're guilty. Now let's step back and see the overarching thing of what Jesus is saying really all throughout the Sermon on the Mount and certainly here in Matthew chapter five. This is a really short statement and so if you've been asleep most of this time, wake up for this. If you're planning on going to sleep, at least stay awake for this part. Here it is, it's very short. Everybody needs Jesus. The godliest person in this room who has the most self-discipline and the greatest spiritual disciplines in your life, the godliest person in this room right now with the most spiritual self-control, please listen to me if you think that's you, you desperately need Jesus. And if you're the person in this room and you think you would probably win the award for committing the most sins in the last 24 hours, You're the person in this room, you haven't even given a thought to God in the last seven days. You desperately need Jesus. The most religious man in this room, the most religious woman in this room, you desperately need Jesus. The most irreligious person in this room, you cannot control your anger or your sexual appetite, you desperately need Jesus. 
Two things that are true about lust. We see this because it comes from the heart and the mouth of Jesus. First of all, if you're taking notes, godless actions always begin with godless thinking. Godless actions, they, they always begin with godless thinking. Sexual sin always begins with a thought. The battle is not in front of the computer screen. The battle is not when you're on a date with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. The battle is not at the house or the apartment or the dorm. The battle is in the heart. The battle is in the mind. You will never act sexually inappropriate outside of scriptural bounds until first you think about it. First it begins in in your heart. This is what Jesus is saying in, in verse 28. It begins right here in, in, in the heart. So much of the Old Testament was about the outward appearance of the people of God. It was about them being clean all the time, all their ceremonies. They were worried all the time about their behavior, how they acted. But so much of the New Testament is Jesus coming to create a new heart inside of us. It's not just an outward change, it's an inward change, a new heart and a new mind. And what we'll see is once Jesus has given us a new heart and a new mind, then the actions follow. Legalism. And the law of the Old Testament said, make sure you behave right. Make sure your appearance looks right to other people. Then Jesus comes and he introduces grace and he goes, I got a better idea than that. What if I give you a new heart and a new mind? So godless actions always begin with, with godless thinking. The second thing we see here, and this is the heavy part, nothing is too precious to eliminate if it guards the purity of your heart. But, but I need my phone. But, but Instagram keeps me updated with, with, with all my people. I, I need that downtime. Nothing is too precious to eliminate if it guards the purity of your heart. This is, again is what Jesus, he's living up to this moniker of Hillside Radical. Uh, back in verse 23 and verse 24, remember he said, don't give your offering until you reconcile. Here he is saying, tear your eye out. Or if you have an old school uh, translation, pluck your eye out. Remove your right hand if it's causing you to sin. This is how important purity is in the kingdom of God. This is how important sexual faithfulness is in the kingdom of God. What are you willing to eliminate in your life to guard the purity that's been purchased for you by Jesus? And it's a heavy question, I know. And I have felt it in the room the last 25 minutes like you have felt it in the room the last 25 minutes. Jesus goes straight to the heart and deals with two things we don't like to deal with. Anger and lust. We're not gonna purposely buy a book on that. We're not gonna purposely, I mean, I didn't tell you today, but you should have known before you came this is what the sermon was gonna be. This is on you for being here. Because Jesus goes straight, if you will, for the jugular. Oh, I want to deal with your anger now. I want to deal with your lust. And it feels heavy to us in here because we don't like anybody messing with our anger and our lust. It feels like it's something that we have the right, I have the right to be angry. I'm just a human. Of course I'm going to lust. And Jesus steps in and he addresses it in such rich ways and real ways. There's a lot in these 10 verses. Jesus isn't messing around. But what does it all mean? Like, like what's the take home from this? 
What's the bottom line? Some of you come to church for the preacher just to give you the bottom line. Here, here it is. God is asking for one thing from you, your heart. That's what he's asking for. And I would imagine the vast majority of people in this house today, because, I mean, look at you. You got up and came to church today. Look at us. 11, 20 at that. And probably that was true about most of us in this room is that the vast majority of our hearts belong to the Lord. But there's a sliver, a small percentage that we have not surrendered to him. And I would guess, I would submit to you that within that little sliver of the heart that you're holding on to yourself, you exercise anger and lust because it's hard to let those two things go. And that's all that God is looking for today, the totality of your heart. And can I ask you to forgive every preacher that has told you otherwise? Can I ask you to forget every sermon when I told you something else? It's not a long list of things that, that God is asking from you. It's not 12 steps to be a better Christian. It is one thing he wants, and that's all of your heart. And then once all of your heart belongs to him, this is what's beautiful, the actions just follow. The, the, behavior, the godliness just follows. So we have it upside down when we say, I've got to be godly, I've got to be godly. I, I don't wanna give all my heart to the Lord, but I've got to be godly. And when Jesus comes, he introduces this thought of a new heart, which is why Jesus is gonna say later on in Matthew chapter six really soon, you seek me first, you seek my righteousness first. And no, everything else, I'll add that to you but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First of all, what does God want from you? Your heart and all of it. Would you stand with me, please, for us to pray together? Father, these are heavy verses. We feel it in this room. We feel it in the, in the back recesses of our hearts right now that you're dealing with some things that we don't like to talk about. We're dealing with some things that we have partitioned away in our hearts. God, you can have everything else, but you can't touch my anger, you can't touch my lust. God, today, we just wanna surrender both those things to you and give you the fullness of our hearts not holding anything back in which the enemy can, can roam, in which darkness can dwell. So God, have your way with us. We, we surrender. We surrender our, our lives, our past. We surrender the fullness of our hearts. Have your way. You're the king who is worthy of all of our lives and the totality of our hearts. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Maybe for some of you here today, it would be a wise thing to come and kneel before the Lord and just lay out your anger to him and give it to him and surrender it to him and then leave it with him. Might be good for some of you today, just come and kneel before the Lord, altars in front of me, to my left, my right, and just lay out that impurity. 
that, that lust, maybe years and decades of lust and addictions and habits. And just to lay that before the Lord and say, Jesus, here's all of my heart. Here's my anger. Here's my lust. I surrender all of this to you. But before you sing this next song, before you potentially come down and kneel before the Lord, and there's someone in this room right now that you know is angry at you, you know what scripture says? Go to them first. Don't sing that song. Don't kneel at the altar. Don't give your financial offering. You go to that person and you seek forgiveness. For a lot of us in this room, that means looking to our spouse and saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've said. I'm sorry for how, how I've acted. I'm sorry for my responses. I don't want to sing this song until I make sure that we're okay, that you have forgiven me. But there's someone here that you need to go talk to before you sing, go. This may be beautifully awkward these next few moments. Lines of people may start lining up in front of you going, hey, I think you're mad at me. We'll see how this goes. It will be very New Testament of us to live life this way, though. To see restoration and forgiveness is more urgent in the heart of Christ than us singing our songs and laying down our lives. We'll have staff members here at the front. If you want to pray with them, they'd love to pray with you. The altars are wide open for you to lay out your heart before the Lord. Let's sing. And won't you please come?